This message first aired on the radio on August 26, 2004. Today, as we continue to take up the second chapter of Colossians, we come to chapter uh, verse 9 in chapter 2, and it's headed, this whole section is headed really by the 8th verse, where we're warned, Beware, lest anyone spoils you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments or elementary things of the world, and not after Christ. Now, when we talk about this problem, this is the enemy's counterattack against the Christian faith. Uh, the Christian faith, as the Scripture says, uh, the, as the Apostle wrote in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And we've taken that up as one of the theme verses of BibleStudy.net for a couple of reasons. The first of which is we're also not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is reasonable, it's logical, it is the most potent thought on earth. We also take it up as a theme, by the way, because we desire that our program would reach the Jew first and also the Gentile. But those things being said, uh, if it's the power of God, if it is God's dynamite, uh, let me say that it's going to be effective. It's going to be powerful, just as the Scripture says, the Word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so with that kind of offensive weapon, the Word of God, with the minds of men, uh, the enemy, our spiritual enemies, and the principalities and powers in heavenly places, uh, they're not going to sit still and take defeat in such a way, in such a humiliating and embarrassing and overwhelming way as the Word of God does bring. And we're going to see a little bit more about uh, their defeat and their demise through the Word of God who was crucified for us, the Son of the Word of God made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So here the counterthrust or the counterattack of the world systems is the philosophies and vain deceits what is called here in verse 8, philosophies and vain deceits. And, and these are comprised of the traditions of men and the rudiments of the world, not after Christ. So we have to look at, well, what are these traditions of men? What are these rudiments of the world? What are these things that attack the faith? What comprises the enemy's device to rob us? Now that we can be robbed, there can be no mistaking. We look at the book of Revelation, and we look at the epistle to the angel of the church in Philadelphia in the sixth letter to the churches of uh, Asia. Remember that Colossae is in Asia, and here now is an epistle that is written uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And I'll just read a little bit extensively here. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them 
to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now here there was a abundant consideration here to the church at Philadelphia, most of which I'll just skip. But at the final moment, here he says, and in the, in the final warning, he says this, Behold, I come swiftly, not, not soon, by the way, not, not that I come immediately, but when I come, I will come very quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take thy crown. And so here we see that there needs to be a holding. The church at Philadelphia is exhorted to hold that which they have. Well, they've been faithful. Uh, they have held the faith, and they need to continue to hold the faith. Because if you do not hold the faith, you will lose your crown. That's what they're told. Let no man, in fact, it doesn't put it this way that you'll lose it, let no one take thy crown. And, of course, they've been warned about the false teaching out of the Jewish system, which is called the synagogue of Satan in Revelation chapter 3. It is not as if there are parallel godly systems today. One, a mosaic economy that's for the Jew, and the other, the Christian faith, which is for everybody who's not a Jew or doesn't want to be a Jew. No, it's not like that at all. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I leave to you, to the Jews, he said, I leave to you your house desolate. And the house of God today is the church of God, the pillar and support of the truth for both Jew and Gentile, wherein there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man in Christ, Well, the church, which is the church of God. Well, now, here's a warning very similar to the one that, that we see in Revelation, this one written by the Apostle Paul, verse 8, uh, Beware lest any man spoil you. Well, one is to take the crown, the other is to spoil. They both have to do with thievery. They both have to do with theft. They both have to do with debauchery. And uh, when we see the traditions of man and the rudiments of the world instead of after Christ, these are the two ways in which the Christian can be robbed of what is for him in Christ here below and also in the age to come. We, we look for this word, uh, we see these rudiments of the world, and we wonder what those are. Well, we can look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, and it tells us, well, we'll, we'll look at verse 1 of Galatians 4, and those of you who are with us in our study of Galatians, maybe this will be a refresher for you. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a, as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, or the rudimentary things of the world. Now, the rudimentary things of the world correspond to bondage. Bondage. Not liberty. Not freedom. Not the emancipation in Christ but it's an indicator and a marking of bondage. And of course, what bondage is it? Well, it's the bondage of sin and death. And therefore, the rulership of the God of this world over us, when our minds were in enmity against God, and when we had no light. But now that we have light, how dare us get robbed, and we shrink back into the rudiments of the world instead of after Christ. Now, what are these philosophies and vain deceits and the, and the implementation and the bondage of the rudiments of this world over the Christian? How are these done? Well, here's how it's done. Here's what the Christian is told to bring him back into bondage. 
First, he is told that Christ is part of the creation. He is not the creator. He is not God Almighty. He is not all that. He is not all that. Especially, he is not all that as a man. And so what we uh, discover is that there are uh, uh, preachings and pratings in this uh, uh, system of the vain philosophy, uh, the philosophies and vain deceits, there's a system of thinking that is not all about Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient one. And so you hear uh, tales about Jesus Christ that he's a spirit and that he's not in a body and that he was the Christ for his age and now there's a Christ uh, for this age or you too can be a Christ or that he had a operating divine uh, principle inside of him that you too can have if you will do what he did and work as he worked and so forth and so on. And it's the old lie of the devil that you will be like God and that you don't really need a Savior, that you are your Savior. And even if you do need a Savior, it's not this one who's the Lord Jesus Christ uniquely, but it is somebody like him, one for this one, one for that one. That's a kind of lies that are taught. But in fact, uh, we're, we're to beware. This is a very severe word. Uh, see to it that you don't buy into this stuff because, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that's a very strong word and uh, strong phrasing in verse 9, and I encourage you to take this verse up with your friends with your brothers and sisters, and with those who uh, uh, say that they believe in Jesus Christ or that they are Christian, and say, well, now, let me ask you something, my friend. Does all the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, he must have a body for that to happen. Is he all there is to know of God? Does all Is he all of God? Is he all of God? Well, of course, people uh, who even claim to be Christian will deny these statements from time to time. One of the uh, most uh, obvious things that I would do when I, and that I do, uh, can, uh, and maybe you can follow this example, when I talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll ask them, uh, maybe even simply, may I speak with you about the Lord Jesus Christ? Or I'll ask them, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And most many people say, well, of course I do. Uh, in fact, due to my background, I have many opportunities with Roman Catholics. I'm a, I was uh, raised in a Roman Catholic school. I went 13 years to Roman Catholic school, spent a semester in a Jesuit university trying to evangelize uh, a Jesuit campus, uh, helping to evangelize a Jesuit uh, campus. Very uh, difficult thing, by the way, very dark area. But Having this experience, I believe God sanctified it to me, and of course my associates and friends, uh, many of them were Roman Catholics. Uh, and so I would begin to say what had happened what, uh, about my own experience and how I came to faith in Christ. And uh, many times, and, and I'm, I'm here now talking of people I barely know, they would say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. And I'd say, well, tell me, what do you believe about him? Uh, do you believe that he... Uh, died for the sins of the whole world. And they may say, well, yes, I do. And I say, well, now, do you believe he rose again from the dead? And they, and they usually say, well, I guess so. I guess so. Well, tell me this. Did he rise in a body, or a, is he a spirit, or what? I'll just open that question up. And almost all say, well, uh, no, I was spiritual. 
It was spiritual. He 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 rose spiritually. He's a spirit. Uh, it's just kind of a spiritual thing. So I, then I get very concrete. Well, now let me ask you this then. If if we could get to, you believe he's in heaven? Well, I guess so. Well, if we could get to heaven, could you touch him? Could you reach out and take a hold of him? Well, I, I guess I don't know. Well, you see, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And these concrete facts about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ are the stuff of faith. And no born-again person denies the materiality of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one denies that he came in the flesh the first time, and no Christian denies that he's coming again in the flesh in his return. Uh, These are the basic tests and elements of the faith. And of course, these are contended by these vain philosophies, uh, the philosophies and vain deceits, and the elements, rudimentary things of the world. And so instead of faith in Christ and the distinct knowledge of who he is, fully God, bodily, ideas and concepts about him replace the facts of him. And and that's one of the things uh, that is done through these philosophies and vain deceits. And, of course, they're talk-arounds. They're talk-arounds. They're very esoteric. They're uh, they're very complicated. You see, this is very complicated, and uh, it, this is a very uh, very subtle. And and people fetch for words about it uh, to be less than blunt. Uh, but now here, the Bible says He's God Almighty in body, and and that's what it says in verse nine. And of course, this is the defense of the faith. This is the stuff and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here. And then the corollary verse is verse 10. So the first piece of a defense and a certainty that we need to take hold of is that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. And then verse 10, and you are complete in him. So so uh, th- those two principles, that's his person and his work for you. His person is that he's God Almighty in body, in the flesh. And then his work has to do what this has to do with the completeness of his work. You are complete in him. You don't need anything else. You are in Christ. You need nothing else. You don't need any kind of right. You don't need any kind of performance. You don't need any kind of accessories, spiritual accessories. As one Roman Catholic priest who did not know Christ as Savior told me, well, I'm glad you have a supplementary faith statement. Now, I don't have a supplementary anything. I have the statement of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's all I need. And that's it. I'm complete in him. I don't need a priest. I don't need a bishop. I don't need a church to be complete in him. I do not need a friend to be complete in him. I don't need a wife. I don't need any of those things to be complete in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ alone is enough. So here we have the principle laid out, verses 9 and 10, and I urge you to go ahead and look at these things and memorize them. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 2, here it is, faith alone in Christ alone. That's that's what we have. And, And of course, these are very strong and blunt statements, and we should keep our statements concerning the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ strong and direct. Now, verse 11, he says, "...in whom you are circumcised." with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So now you may wonder, well, why does he start raising circumcision? Why does he start talking about circumcision in verse 11 after he's just noted that we are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power? Well, 
The reason he's talking about circumcision is because the admixture of heathen religions and Judaism is what is attacking the Colossians. And all of the Christians throughout all of the ages uh, since the uh, gospel was fully delivered. And so uh, now he says, you're complete in him, and all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, and he is the uh, not only is the uh, is the the head of the body, the church, but he's ahead of all principalities and powers. There's no uh, being of any kind, no concept of any kind, nothing that fit into the uh, pagan religious notion of the pleroma or fullness. There's nothing about anything that they talk about that he's not in front of, ahead of, and that's not in him. All things in him, made by him, he's before all things. He's the head of all things. So no matter how grandiose a statement you make about anybody or anything else, the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than that. And my Savior can beat up your Savior. You're listening to John Malone, BibleStudy.net. We'll be right back. Well, verse 11 does take up the subject of circumcision, and it is the calling card of the Judaizers. You remember from the book of Galatians how the Judaizers used circumcision in a wrong way. The Judaizers actually turn the scriptures upside down and distort the scriptures, which is why we have the scriptures written to us, especially the epistle of the Galatians, as 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 it corrects the believers who stray from the doctrinal treatise of the epistle to the Romans. And the Judaizers came in and said, well, Abraham is good enough. Oh, well, that's nice that you've been introduced to Abraham. But after Abraham came Moses. Step on up here now to Moses. And you remember that after Abraham believed God, then he was circumcised. And so you need now, having after you believe God, to be circumcised like Abraham was, and then step on up to Moses and keep this law and so forth and get in touch with uh, your religious self. Well, the epistle of the Galatians is written uh, exactly about that error to point out that the purpose of the law was to bring the Savior in. The Savior has come. He's died for our sins. The Mosaic economy, nothing wrong with it. It fulfilled its purpose, but it isn't for you. And also that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and so he was justified while in uncircumcision. So here's the calling card of the Judaizer, and he says, well, okay, you've had introduction to Jesus Christ, but now you lack something. You lack something. And, of course, this is the hiss of the serpent. You lack something. That's why before we go into this, we saw in verse 10, you are complete in him. You say, well, you're not complete in him because you don't have circumcision. So you're not complete without circumcision. That's the thought that's being told them. Now, he says, in Christ you are circumcised. Of course, the circumcision uh, that is in the flesh is meaningless. In fact, the apostle called it the concision or the mutilation, and it's a nothing. He says circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. These are part of the nothings. These are part of the rudiments of the world. You say, well, circumcision, God gave it to Abraham as a sign of his covenant. He gave it to Moses. Yeah, he did that, and it served its purpose, and it's done, my friends. It is done. The Lord Jesus Christ 
inaugurated a new covenant with Israel. They rejected him. Uh, They're not in the good of it. There's a day coming when they will be in the good of it. But just as it was prophesied in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, before he died, he inaugurated a new covenant with Israel, and they rejected him, and they rejected those who followed him. And that new covenant is in abeyance until a later time. And in the meantime, God has opened up this marvelous peace treaty with the entire world where he is reconciling all things to himself in Christ and you have a much better opportunity uh, my Jewish friend than circumcision would ever give you and my Gentile friend don't you even think for a minute that your that circumcision or any other right can add anything to you when you're in Christ well that's what it says he says it in fact in verse 11 and we have here now a metaphor in Christ you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, of course, circumcision is a surgical operation. It's a surgical procedure, and uh, it's not a spiritual thing whatsoever, but it is a surgical procedure. It's done with hands, and it's only done on men, by the way, so you ladies, uh, you know, this really leaves you out. Uh, But uh, here, here, ladies, you have the circumcision without hands. My sister, you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've also come into this circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by what? The circumcision of Jesus Christ. Well, what circumcision is this? Well, insofar as this is a circumcision made without hands, it can't be Christ's circumcision in his body, which took place eight days after his birth. No, in fact, the circumcision without hands, which was the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, was his death on the cross, his cutting off as he was cut off from this world. Just as the prophecy of Daniel said, uh, uh, Messiah will be cut off. In fact, Messiah was cut off, and that's the circumcision of Christ that we see in verse 11. It is his death for our sins, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, and subsequently, by the way, the the putting on of the body of Christ, or the taking on of the body of Christ, which is the fullness of Jesus Christ. You see, that's another thing that we fail to acknowledge and recognize when we begin to take up the philosophies and vain deceits of the world and adopt their pratings and uh, adopt their uh, the world's uh, the world system's rights and the world system's rudimentary things, processes, procedures, and so forth. We discard the marvelous truth that the church, which is Christ's body, is the fullness of him. He's the fullness of the Godhead, but the fullness of Jesus Christ is the church, which is his body. That's the marvelous mystery out of the epistle of the Ephesians, and that's the thing, friends, which we fail to hold. We are, as the church local, as the church dispensational, we are the fullness of Christ. We are all that all that Christ wants to present to the world. Historically, his suffering, death, and his person, and presently, his church, which is his body. And when we begin to adopt tra- traditions of men, rudimentary things of the world, the philosophies and vain deceits, why we bring him into an open shame, as the epistle to Hebrews says. Now, and, and by the way, his circumcision was an open shame. 
uh, his circumcision, their, uh, his suffering on the cross, that was a public shame to the eyes without understanding. But to the eyes with understanding, why, it's quite something else which we'll come to in just a couple of minutes. But now that we've dealt with the matter of circumcision and say that that was actually fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ, and so it's a metaphor, circumcision is a metaphor for the for the work that Jesus Christ did for us, and we're complete in him with circumcision now being a nothing, uh, we have now verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Now, this, I believe, is water baptism. It says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Here we see baptism on its proper ground. We see buried with him in baptism, or co-buried uh, in baptism. Well, of course, we're not buried. We didn't die, and we haven't gone in the ground, so immediately we understand that baptism is the figure of that. Just as circumcision was a figure for uh, the Lord's crucifixion, his suffering and death, and the putting off of the body of sins. So baptism is not the same figure as circumcision is. Baptism is now a figure of Christ's work for us, or Christ's work as applied to us. As it tells us in the epistle of 1 Peter, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. We're already complete baptism apart, but how do we answer? How do we answer with our good conscience? We've been given a good conscience. I say to people, well, how does it become good? Because there are those out there that tell you that baptism, uh, not in a figure, saves us. In other words, it's not a figure, but that baptism actually is part of being saved, and that you must be baptized to be saved. Well, this is false. I'm already complete when I'm in Christ. And how did my, if baptism is the answer of a good conscience, one says, well, how did the conscience become good? Well, the conscience became good because of the application of the blood of his cross to my life. And now I seek for a way to answer. So how does my good con conscience answer back to God? as in, in uh, signifying uh, that I am born again, that I have received Christ as my Savior, that I am now in Him. Well, baptism is that answer. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised Him from the dead. And so we see that baptism is a sign of our faith. And what do we believe? We believe that he was cut off for our sake, that he died for our sins, and we believe that he rose out again from the dead. And so baptism, going down into the water, coming out of the water, is a picture of that. It is uh, a, a, a fitting symbol and a fitting statement and a fitting answer of the good conscience toward God. Now, as the epistle continues here in the 13th verse, as the apostle continues to discuss the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and its effectiveness toward us, it says, You being dead in your, in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, here he talks to predominantly Gentile believers. Of course, here in Colossae, these are predominantly Gentile believers. So he said, Now you were dead in sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So up to the 13th verse, beginning with the 8th verse, he starts with a warning. And he says, Well, here now is a warning for you. Don't be spoiled by get, being taken in by the lies that are besetting you. And the lies that beset them are the denial of the materiality of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the denial of his being God in the flesh, that he is fully man and fully God, that the denial of uh, that aspect of his person, and the denial that they are complete. And so the apostle now certifies, he says, don't worry about circumcision, because circumcision is fulfilled in the cross, and uh, baptism is the, is the sign that demonstrates your completeness in him, as you have died with him, and you are also risen with him. And by the way, behind all this is, if we are risen with him, well then where is he? And the answer to that, found excellent, most excellency, excellently, in the book of Hebrews, is that he is exalted in the high heavens above all principalities and powers. And now here he's, it says this, when you were dead and in uncircumcision, he made you alive, God made you alive, together with the Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection is your resurrection, and it is part and parcel of the forgiveness of sins. That we see in verse 13. Now, more than that, however, more than merely making us alive and forgiving our sins, we have these rudiments of the world that they're being invaded with, and also, by the way, part of the rudiments of the world are the wrongful application of the law of Moses to the believer, which has no application to the believer, as it has been fulfilled. And so the, the attempted use of of placing the believer under the law of Moses has become, because it has been fulfilled by Christ, has become the very same thing as putting the believer under the ordinances made up by the world system uh, by man. And there, that's what verse 14 of Colossians 2 is written about. Blotting, it says, or having blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now here we have uh, some unique language we see, we hear we see now that the that the handwriting this is chirographon the handwriting of ordinances was against, which was against us was erased or blotted out of course there's uh, here we have to understand the technology of the day uh, the technology of the day was that handwriting was inscribed on parchments well this is a, an important thought here because a parchment actually emanated out of this area of the world and so he's using a convenient uh, uh, mechanism to describe exactly what happened. But just as the law was written, not for us, by the way, but was written against us, the work of the cross has blotted the handwriting of ordinances. Well, blotting out is, is the only thing that they could do to destroy handwriting in that day. Didn't have erasers, uh, certainly uh, didn't have their, uh, their characters in, in electronic lights as we do. You couldn't just delete it. Uh, but this has to do with the erasing of the handwriting that's against us. This has to do, my friends, with a, the work of the cross in destroying and in uh, eliminating the work of the law against us, the handwriting of ordinances. And so handwritten ordinances or written ordinances, even written by the hand of God, are no longer against us because Christ has taken that out of the way. We're not just forgiven our sins, but the definition of sins against us is taken out and the penalty of sin removed far from us forever. That's what it means to be complete in Christ. You see, if there was some if there was something yet in jeopardy for you to be in Christ, for you to have eternal life, if there was then you wouldn't be complete in him. 
So we are complete in him, and even the handwriting of ordinances is taken out of the way. So you say, well, maybe you say, well, then there's no danger whatsoever for me. Well, there's only the danger for you is this, that you will leave this blessed faith and that you will adopt the rudimentary things of the world and thereby let someone rob you blind of your reward in Christ. Well, here he says, the ordinances were against us. It was contrary to us. He took those ordinances out of the way, verse 14, Colossians 2, nailing it to his cross. Well, now we think immediately what was nailed to that stake coming out of the ground besides our Lord Jesus Christ, and that were accusations against him. Uh, friends, the law is the is a rightful and proper accusation against us. It defines us as a sinner. Now, it was wrongly applied to him. Uh, he, he was accused of crimes he never did. And he didn't answer back because he took our accusation also upon himself. It was also nailed to his cross. This is something quite not well known today because of the inroads that Judaism and vain philosophies and vain deceits and empty philosophies have made in the Christian faith. But the law is against us. You that want to keep the law, don't you know what the law says? This is a very brief uh, reference now back to the epistle of the Galatians. The law is against us. The law is good in and of itself, but it's against me. And so I'm glad that he took it out of the way, that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against me. Even the handwriting of ordinances, by the way, that was written on my Gentile heart. And so here it was also nailed to his cross. So I also see in his cross the accusations against me taken out of the way by him. So now we begin to see the great depth of the work of the cross. The work of the cross is our circumcision. The work of the cross is that which takes away the handwriting of ordinances against us. Now, finally, the work of the cross, that's its man word, and that's its obvious application toward me. But what about the heavenly sphere? Well, here in verse 15, now is the apostle discusses the work of the cross in the heavenly sphere. And this is something, by the way, that only our eyes of understanding can see. You can't watch some depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, some film, for example, and see this. You have to read this in the scriptures. Here it is. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is to say, his cross. Now, when we look here at verse 15, we see something else. You see the principalities and powers, and we're going to see it later here in Colossians 2, formulate these religious systems and hand them off to men who listen to their lies and their errors. And, of course, these principalities and powers are spirit beings in the heavenly places. Now, they, they systematically put together a religious system to spoil us. But the fact is, if we'll only see it with the eyes of our understanding open, that the Lord Jesus Christ spoiled them. He spoiled them, he bound them up, he whipped them in, the, in his cross, he made a public show of them. When it seemed like the Lord Jesus Christ was being made a public show of infamy, in fact, he turned the tables on them, and he made a public show in the heavenly places of their infamy. And to slip back into some kind of religious system, elements of the world, is to disgrace this great work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we'll be back with more in just a minute. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone. 
We probably don't meditate enough on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the details of it. We're going to drill down on that a little bit because we're looking at Colossians 2.15, whereby it tells us that he spoiled principalities and powers in his cross. That is to say, there was an aspect of this work of the cross that was toward the heavenly places. And, of course, we realize that later because in the, we realize that in reading the Scripture later because we do know that he cleansed the heavenly th- places themselves with his blood. And one, one of the marvelous truths, uh, and the, the central marvelous truth, uh, that we are to hold in the secret that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures is that we are a heavenly people seated in the heavenly places and that the Lord Jesus Christ, as we understand with the eyes of our understanding open and what we see by faith, as a man has been elevated above the angels and is seated at the right hand of God on high. This, of course, is the marvelous work, corporate work. This is the marvelous uh, federal head work that he did. When we say that uh, the church, which is his body, is the fullness of Christ, of course, it means that he has a body, that he has, a we, we might say, a mystery body or a mystical body, uh, that he has incorporated into his federal headship a new humanity. And that he did this on the work of, uh, through the work of his cross is something we should drill down and look at. If he, After all, if he spoiled principalities and powers and he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in his cross, maybe we should look and see how did that work. Well, in order for us to see that, we first can look at Acts, the fourth chapter. And and here in the, in the fourth chapter, this is, a ver- this is a section of scripture we like to turn to from time to time. Uh, this had to do uh, with the prayer of the apostolic company after uh, Peter and John had been uh, beaten, they had been uh, imprisoned, they had been uh, arrested, and they were let go, and they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And of course, the chief priests and elders told them not to talk about Jesus Christ anymore, and they said, well, uh, listen, uh, we're going to just say what God tells us to say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you uh, more than to him, you guys judge uh, but because we are just going to speak about the things we have seen and heard. We're eyewitnesses to his glory. And so they come back to their company, and they report that the chief priests and elders uh, want to restrain the gospel of Jesus Christ in unrighteousness, which evil men always want to do. And when they, that is the company, heard that, they lifted up their voice to God. Now I'm reading in Acts 4.24, uh, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And of course, now they're saying, Lord, this is our Lord Jesus Christ, they pray to. And they say, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The quotation of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, this is the earthly aspect, the kings of the earth and the rulers. The lords of the earth stood up against the Lord Jesus Christ. Behind the lords of the earth, as we learn in 1 Corinthians, there are lords many and there are gods many, are the gods or the spirit beings the called principalities and powers in Colossians chapter 2. We're behind these uh, kings and rulers that stood up against 
the Lord and his Christ, and for of a truth against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here we have kind of an inside-out parallelism. Herod and Pontius Pilate, Gentiles who correspond to Pilate and people of Israel, they were gathered together. They were unified against the, the Christ. And by the way, friends, the enmity against Jesus Christ still demonstrates the unification of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's where they get along. The only one place that Jews and Gentiles really get along in this world, and that is to hate Christ. And so no, no uh, surprise to us that the great threat that is given here in the Colossian uh, epistle is the, uh, some bizarre amalgamation of Judaism and Gentile uh, religious system. And there's no better example of an amalgamated Jewish and Gentile system, no better example of the pagan mystery religions mixed up with a bunch of Judaism than Roman Catholicism. Well, we'll go there maybe later uh, in some further detail, but it is pr uh, a premier example throughout a couple thousand years, certainly we would say 1,700 years, where it's become a notable example of a mishmash and amalgam uh, that would that would try to seduce God's people away from the true faith. Well, here these are praying, and they said, now these gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. What? Verse 28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now here's something about the character of God that I find to be interesting. In fact, I find it to even be humorous. That maybe I have a bad sense of humor, but I get a, a humorous charge out of God taking the wicked in their own devices. It's something he always does. He takes the wicked in their own device. Uh, the wicked, uh, uh, they organize themselves. Uh, they go about trying to uh, build some kind of uh, a trap for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the grandest trap of all that they built was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 4, we say that they gathered together and they formed a conspiracy for to do whatever it is that God planned to be done. And so they, in their hatred of our Lord Jesus Christ, planned out the cross of Jesus Christ. And both uh, Herod and Pilate uh, went along and got that done. Uh, the Jewish leader and the Gentile leader, they got that done. And they thought in the cutting off of him and in the placing of him at the, at there at Golgotha uh, on that cross, that he would be put to an open sh show of shame and that he would be conquered in an open uh, way. And behind all this were principalities and powers plotting this out and and seemingly getting their will achieved both through the uh, traitor uh, the tra uh, the traitor Judas and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and Herod and Pilate and all these other forces which conspired together to crucify our Lord Jesus Christ and what was God doing in all of that well God was doing whatsoever he had always planned to do. And so we see, for example, in the 19th chapter of John, uh, John's Gospel, uh, we read this. Uh, here Pilate uh, was seeking to uh, uh, release Jesus, but he was also uh, bringing him uh, into a mocking, and uh, 
He brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ, having had him beaten, and then Jesus came forth, John 19, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto him, Eche, said unto them, Eche homo, or behold the man. And when the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now here you see them misusing their law. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and he went into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said unto him, Don't you speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you, and I have the power to release you? And Jesus said, You could have no power at all against me, except it were given to you from above. And so, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is now informing Pilate uh, about how things really work. And he's saying, Look, behind all this is the things of ab from above. Uh, you may think you have power. You may think that you're running uh, the show around here. But in fact, everything that you're doing is run from heaven. Now, this is, this is the stuff of the scriptures. Uh, this is not some cleverly devised fable. Uh, we haven't believed some cleverly devised fable. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said. And so he, he said, uh, uh, Now, therefore, he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. And now he's just saying Judas a greater sinner than, than Pilate. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now, here you see the Jews amalgamating themselves or building the alliance with the Roman, with the hated Roman system. And it's ever been that way since. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him therefore to, unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus, and they led him away. And of course they crucified him. So now we see that the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ was a plot. It was uh, a conspiracy. It was a Jewish and Gentile conspiracy to uh, the demise of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only his demise, by the way, but a shameful demise to put him to disgrace. But God was behind all of this. And he now took the wicked in their own device, and that which was supposed to be a disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ began to be the spoiling of principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And I believe that the principalities and powers, the wicked spirits, which uh, were all around uh, this scene, uh, uh, urging those evil and wicked men to crucify the Lord. And uh, then now, when he's on the cross, uh, making an open show, uh, making his victor uh, victory known in the heavenly places as he's on the cross, uh, the, while, while men are watching him, we read in Matthew 27, verse uh, uh, 36, uh, there are those who 
for example, the soldiers that crucified him uh, were watching him, and they put up over his head the accusation written, this is, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now I'm in Matthew 27, 37. And of course we know that the nailing of ordinances was up there on that cross, taking those away from hindering us. And then it said, uh, it tells us in verse 38, there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And they said, thou that destroys the temple, build and build it in three days, save yourself. If you be the son of God, come down from the cross. Well, here's an amazing thing. Uh, first of all, the minions of Satan, those that listened to the, his, uh, to the message of the principalities and powers that were filtered down to, to, the, to the wicked men of the earth who would put the Lord Jesus Christ to an open shame. First they say, crucify him, crucify him. As he is on that cross, making an open sh- uh, triumph, an open, an open show, uh, making a notorious show of his victory over sin and death, the minions of Satan now carry a different message. Come down from the cross. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't listen to that because he was busy spoiling the heavenly places. And he captured the heavenly places. He spoiled the heavens. He took all that there is in the heavens as a man through the work of his cross. And by the way, my friend, his desire is that we would be joint heirs with him in the enjoyment of those heavenly places. And that's why we're to fight. And that's why we're to hold the faith. Because he wants to divide the spoil with the strong. And there's a day coming when those angelic beings, those principalities and powers, are going to put in their rightful, be put in their rightful place. They're going to be thrown out of the heavens, and they're going to be cast in the lake that burns with fire. And what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to do is to fill the heavens with his resurrected church, which is his body, those who have qualified to rule and reign with him because he's been anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, and his desire is that we would be joint heirs with him and that we would reign with him. Well, if we endure with him, if we hold fast the faith, we shall reign with him. Now that's what we're told in 1 Timothy. And this is what the epistle of the Colossians is written for so that you and I would be successful in the faith. Now there's an application to all of this that follows in Colossians. In fact, in verse 16 and 17, we see the application. It says, Let no man therefore... therefore what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is there for us to understand that because of the work of the cross nobody's going to judge me in meat or in drink or in respect of some holy day or a new moon or of a Sabbath. Nobody's going to put some kind of dietary rules on me. Nobody is going to give me holidays that I need to keep. Nobody's going to give me new moons I need to keep. Nobody's going to tell me to be a Sabbath keeper because I am complete in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm not going to turn back to the weak and beggarly elements. And here it is in verse 16 of Colossians 2. The Lord says, don't you let anybody else put you under these things also. You don't put yourself under this. People put you under this. Don't let somebody rob you of the great opportunity to rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ because you won't endure in the faith. And and we, we go on with an explanation. We won't take it all up today, but let me just say that all of those things which men would put you onto were a shadow of things to come. They were a shadow of things to come, but now is the body of Christ. 
And so why go look at shadows when the real thing is here, and by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become part of his fullness, which is the church, which is his body. Well, we have much more to say, but we can't say them now, not because you can't hear them, but because we don't have time. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. This is John Malone. May God bless your meditation in his word, especially the epistle to the Colossians.